Hello everyone and welcome to our new series, Unlocking the Future, EU Industry Days podcast, presenting insights, trends and challenges, but also fresh opportunities emerging from Europe's industrial transformation. In this roundtable episode, our guests are going to tackle reshoring and relocating, a subject that's been known to split audiences and challenge long-held ideas about a truly globalised economy. Amid the COVID shadow, a light has been shone on the big question. Should Europe look inward and produce goods, especially medical supplies and strategic items, closer to home? Should it bring outsourced contracts from areas like the Far East back to Europe or to countries closer in strategic outlook, so-called ally shoring? For many multinationals, though, such geopolitics and strategic argumentation take a backseat to bottom lines and logistics. Reshoring or nearshoring is not necessarily in their best interest. Now, our experts on this panel can no doubt shed more light on how Europe can strike a balance between the benefits of reshoring and maintaining production sites abroad. And we are very pleased to have with us today Emma Nerenheim, Chief Environmental Officer at Northvolt. Werner Raza is Director of the OFSE, the Austrian Foundation for Development Research. And Ulla Grove Krosgaard Thompson is the CEO of Novo Nordisk Pharmatech. Thank you all very much for being with us. Let's start by exploring what the theme means to you all and what what your first take is on this particular topic. Werner, what does this topic mean to you in terms of the work you're doing? Well, um, thanks also for the invitation. It's a pleasure to participate in this discussion. Um, Well, together with colleagues, I've been involved over the last years in in a couple of projects, um, including a study for the International Trade Committee of the European Parliament on the prospects for uh, reshoring of uh, critical um, products back to the European Union. Um, uh, We've also been working on resilience and sustainability issues in in diverse supply chains over the last couple of years. So I'm coming in terms of my background from an international development perspective. So I'm particularly interested also um, in the question of what Um, reshoring and resilience-oriented policies that uh, European Union-based companies might um, implement during the the next years, what kind of impact that will have on um, countries in the Global South, low-income countries and their respective export-oriented industries. Um, So I think it is certainly a timely topic. We, We will need to discuss this in detail. Uh, we will need to to have a, I think, nuanced and and sober um, assessment of um, uh, of supply chains uh, in in different sectors. Um, and I'm here to share any um, insights that we have gained so far from our work. Thank you, Emma. Of course, I think it's a great topic to discuss. I mean, normally this topic is hidden within other topics that I come across. For instance, sustainability. For instance, uh, uh, how to build the local supply chain and so on. And I think that. We've seen, of course, the trend uh, in low-cost countries moving uh, production uh, out of Europe. Uh, we are now seeing a clear trend that we have advantages, advantages here. Uh, we're seeing a clear trend that uh, to protect the sustainability, to control, uh, to have a great overlook and to secure whatever the end customer wants in terms of sustainability, there, is, there are many advantages in, in, in being uh, more local. So I I think it's a great topic. I think we need to spend much more time on it. Thank you. Ulla, tell me about you and your work and your perspective on the topic, please. 
Yeah, I guess I'm here representing the pharmaceutical industry. And for us, it's obviously a matter of being able to deliver critical, critical medicines to the patients. So for me, it's a matter of uh, securing supply and doing that uh, and, and mitigating risks uh, the most possible. And I think, of course, we do that also by looking into doing uh, our sourcing in ethical ways so that we don't have... Uh, um, we don't have uh, suppliers that uh, breach the human rights legislation. And we also select our suppliers from their ability to uh, have uh, ambitions in terms of uh, CO2 reduction. So uh, we, we certainly uh, uh, want to have uh, freedom and flexibility in our way of uh, using suppliers. So I think I'm... I'm in it for, of course, being ethical away the way you select your supplies, but also risk mitigating to the most possible so we can secure our supply to the patients. Well, let's address the question of industrial autonomy or self-reliance. It's often presented as a panacea for longer term resilience. And of course, resilience is the key word we hear over and over again at the moment. Do you think that's true or false? Is that a very clear statement to say that it must be autonomous in order to be resilient? Or is it more complicated than that? Werner, let me ask you that question. Uh, well, um, well self-reliance um, understood as traditionally understood as in the debates of the 1960s and 70s that actually come from development economics is clearly an unrealistic strategy uh, for the uh, European Union to, to pursue. Um, but I would also argue that neither is a continuation of the prevailing model of globalized production via global supply chains any more realistic. Um, I think that two crucial and interconnected issues have shifted the debate and are likely to do so uh, in the near future. Firstly, um, I think that the pandemic experience with COVID has shown that in particular producer countries have at least temporarily restricted exports of essential products and favored national distribution instead. Um, so I think that suggests that during crises, international cooperation breaks down, at least for some time, or is severely hampered, and that countries at the receiving end of supply chains uh, experience shortages. Um, very clear in the case of vaccines with uh, countries in sub-Saharan Africa. So since governments bear the responsibility for the security of supply of their populations, but only have sovereign competences of their own jurisdictions, over their own jurisdictions, there is a clear incentive to promote local production of essential goods. Um, the second tendency is the uh, geopolitical rivalry between the United States, which has been intensifying considerably over the last uh, couple of years. And I think this will lead to a partial decoupling of global supply chains and the emergence of more regionalized supply chains for essential goods, as well as strategic sectors, in particular high-tech and other foundational technologies. Given the high dependence of the EU on imports of medical and pharmaceutical imports from, from China in particular, uh, this you know, um, exposes to some extent a potential strategic vulnerability of the, of the European Union. Emma, let me bring you in, Emma. Um, what's your take on this? Uh, autonomy or self-reliance? Is it the be-all and end-all? No, I, I think that, I mean, just spontaneously, my reflection is that it, it, what we need is for the world in many cases to be more balanced. I mean, the, the, the issue of the, the outsourcing of uh, 
of produ production and deliveries from Asia to to the Western world is uh, is a problem related to that it's so unbalanced. And of course, uh, it would be great if we had more. Uh, self-dependence but also it would be great if we had a better balance between delivering to each other and being a, in a bigger dependence both ways so that we had a uh, so that that it was a mutual interest to remain with the business relations even in crisis but also in the day-to-day day-to-day uh, -day operation and under normal circumstances so that's a little bit my spontaneous reflection on that Ulla, let me ask you to reflect on, on two sides of it then in two sort of separate parts. Um, as Emma mentions, the day-to-day -day outside the pandemic and then also maybe taking into account, obviously as a farm tech company, you can represent the differences that we've seen with the change that the pandemic has brought. So so where is self-reliance and autonomy? Uh, I think uh, what, uh, what uh, COVID-19 uh, taught us is that we need to be really agile in, the, in our supply chains and we certainly need to find new ways. I also saw uh, new partnerships uh, coming up during the pandemic uh, where we saw uh, even uh, public-private uh, uh, partnerships uh, taking place and uh, biotech and uh, big, in, uh, big industry in Denmark actually collaborated to make sure that we could get some of these, uh, these critical supplies. So I think we learned a lot about agility during the pandemic. We also experienced that there were critical process aids that uh, went out of stock, but there was, a, you could say, global prioritization around where did that, where did it go? So I guess a lot of, uh, of critical process aids were prioritized to making the vaccines and then also of producers of critical medicines for patients were also prioritized. Uh, so I think, uh, but it said, there were certainly cases where there were reagents we couldn't get a hold of where we had to think out of the box and then move that uh, those uh, production of those reagents uh, locally. So I, I think it, it taught us to be very, very agile. I think in the long run, I have uh, for my business here, I have suppliers where raw materials are, uh, are from Australia. It's processed in Japan and we get it here and we continuously evaluate if that's the right, the uh, right sourcing, but, but, uh, but for now, we find that it is the right way. And I, I, I wouldn't want to lay uh, political filters over such uh, sourcing routes, to be honest. So I think it's a matter of at any time optimizing and securing your, your critical supplies and then also building trust uh, between partners in the system or in the setup. Well, Ulla, as a, as a follow-up question to you, you're talking about the need for agility within supply chains. And of course, COVID-19 really did disrupt supply chains around the world. Do you think that some of the reactions we've seen, whether that be agility and flexibility or whether that be nearshoring, are, for example, a knee-jerk reaction that will fade? Or do you think these will be new practices that will stand the test of time even after we emerge from the pandemic? I hope they will stand because I think that we need uh, that agility in our our way of sourcing uh, materials. Um, and then I think there, yes, I think that we have learned a lot from that. There was a lot of uh, new ways of working also, digitalization, virtual meetings, all this that also taught us a lot. So there was a lot of, of 
or it still is because COVID is still here as I see it. Um, there was a lot of disruption, and I think the move, the world moved a lot in terms of agility due to uh, due to this pandemic. Well, Emma, the same question to you: uh, How do you see knee-jerk reactions or instant reactions or emergency responses compared to longer-term change? Uh, if you mean uh, in terms of what we learned from COVID and uh... Yeah, I mean, I think that just as we heard just now, the the knowledge that we can be much more flexible than we ever thought, the understanding that we could find creative solutions uh, in 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 many ways where we were not prepared. On the other hand, I think that the most important thing was that all the things we took for granted, uh, everything in um, uh, in uh, in relation to logistics and transportation, anything related to supply chain overall, and and when the borders closed and and we realized how sensitive we were, I think that the most important lesson that we learned across the pandemic was we need to be much more prepared. We need to have redundancy. It's not. It's about agility, but it's also about understanding that we need to be much more prepared we need to have contracts that are uh, ready for uh, for uh, other things than just the normal variations and i think that uh, just understanding that and having it in mind uh, and having stronger relationships uh, uh, in in the in the back pocket for when this happens will be crucial going forward Werner, let me bring you in there i think you've something to add on this topic um yes um well, I think that, as, as, as my previous co-speakers already have, have underlined, um, there is a certain shift going on also in the corporate sector. I mean, uh, recent surveys have shown that an, an increasing number of companies in strategic sectors um, is reinforcing its, its policies uh, for resilience, is reconsidering its sourcing strategies. Um, there is a certain um, tendency to... Um, um, to also diversify suppliers, uh, both geographically and also in terms of the number of suppliers that companies um, um, source from. Uh, obviously, that will take some time. Uh, it, it will involve costs for companies. Um, also, another issue that has been coming up uh, in the discussion uh, more recently has been the issue of stockpiling um, and, and storage in general. Obviously, that also differs between sectors, storability of products or inputs is different across sectors. So uh, I think what we need is, if you want a balanced approach that looks on a sector and even if you want product uh, or product class basis uh, on what is feasible, what is necessary. Um, and, and, and so I think this will take some time. Uh, we also have um, a discussion on, on these issues at the European level within the um, framework of the pharmaceutical strategy of the European Commission. Um, and... Um, so this will take some time, but I will, I think it's not just you know a knee-jerk, um, short-term um, phenomenon. Uh, it will have a lasting impact on how um, production processes are organized in the future. And uh, one one last final sentence: uh, what we also see now in the logistical and transport sector is a certain um, restructuring uh, in terms of how the sector operates. Um, also in terms of, of pricing power. Um, so we do see a concentration 
process in these companies, which will increase the pricing power um, of, of transport companies, particularly large transport companies. That will add, obviously, to the cost of entertaining um, um, long-distance supply chains. So I think there are a couple of issues and a couple of tendencies that in, in, in total contribute to a certain shortening um, of, of supply chains in the future. Well, Ulla, Werner has raised an interesting point there regarding stockpiling. How do you see that in, in terms of its relationship to reshoring or relocating? Or what has your experience been in your sector regarding stockpiling? Is there something or anything? Yeah, I think with the, actually, yeah, there, pro, there has been stockpiling, of course, because people wanted to secure their supply chains. I must also say that it went so thin that there, it wasn't possible to stockpile uh, in some cases, in some of the critical process aids uh, that I was talking uh, to before. So, so of course, but I, I, it also comes back to what Emma was saying. I think we have learned a lot about the risks that can happen. And I think we have uh, taken a renewed look at our risk mitigation on when we make a sustainable supply chain for our, our processes. And I think, uh, of course, you need to have the strategic stocks necessary uh, in order to survive whatever situation you're trying to uh, to mitigate. So, so COVID-19 situation could be one. Some of the climate changes we are seeing is also something that we have to take into account when we plan our, uh, yeah, our supply chains and how we, what stock level is the strategically right one to have uh, for your production. Emma, I don't know whether you want to add anything on that or not to move on to the next question. No, I, mean, I was just thinking that I mean, we're moving from uh, from when we talk about terms for for contracts in general. When we do global trading and and uh, and purchasing, we're talking so much more about delivery now. I mean, we always discussed how and in, under what terms we deliver stuff, but but delivery and a, a ability to deliver on time maybe in the future will overshadow discussions on pricing or discussions on on other things. So alongside sustainability and um, and footprint that the supplier provides, I think that just the just the ability and the references around uh, deliveries and especially on on time, I think is going to be a, a much bigger topic going forward. Well, you mentioned footprint, so I do want to raise the question of environmental footprint because we do have these other issues. Um, including also compliance and auditing and, and areas in the supply chain that need to be taken account of when we talk about reshoring or, or sourcing. What are your thoughts there, um, Emma, just to, to start to continue with you on, on the question of environmental or other impacts that you might want to raise? I mean, this is uh, this is a, a little bit an easier topic. Uh, I think that it's, uh, for me, having worked very closely with this, it's very obvious that the shorter the supply chain and the closer the partner uh, the 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 more rigorous the the authority and compliance scheme around the supplier, the easier it is to to develop a, a, a footprint calculation and and audits and DDs and all that. So um, it's very clear to me that the local supply chain is preferable, and being heavily involved is preferable. So so in that case, it's easier to evaluate. <laughs> Uh, these questions. 
having said that, of course, we have suppliers across the seas that are really good at this and that really wants to be in the game. So, uh, I mean, with everything we have, um, it's a global market and, uh, and, and we are happy uh, to be challenged. But uh, so far, yeah. Werner, I'd like to ask you a bit about the geopolitical balancing act that uh, possibly seems required in, when we're talking about ally shoring. Um, what's your view on that? Uh, in particular, anything to do with mediator roles or, or any ways to manage that in a way that is sustainable going forward? Um, well, you know, I think this is basically a discussion that, that, that has emanated in, in U.S. national security uh, debates. Um, and that is now, if you want, reaching also the European uh, Union to a higher extent. Um, so I think um, that, that the political pressure for, for near-shoring or ally-shoring might, uh, might, might increase um, in the future, uh, particularly given the, um, the pressure and the interest uh, of, the Europe, of the United States government um, to form alliances in, in high-tech sectors and other industries involving foundational technologies uh, with the European Union. Um, so so um, with the European Union considered an ally, the U.S. will arguably um, um, put pressure on the EU to form certain alliances, particularly against China. Um, I think this is um, dangerous. Um, I'm not very um, sympathetic to, to that kind of outlook. It will not only damage the economic interests of the European Union, vice uh, versa, China, um, uh, given the EU, EU's high dependence on China, for example, with respect to rare earths or active pharmaceutical ingredients, but it will also test, uh, if you want, the internal political coherence of the European Union, uh, given that different positions exist on the importance and future of transatlantic relations, uh, relations on, on the one hand and also on the relations with China respectively. So um, from a political point of view, I think this is a very ambivalent um, development. From the economic point of view, um, you know, forming alliances with the U.S. will not always conform to the European uh, interests. Um, we shouldn't forget that the European Union um, has entertained and is still entertaining very you know, tense uh, trade uh, and investment relations with China. Um, um, certain European products are um, depending on, on the Chinese market. Um, so I think, um, yeah, also from the economic point of view, I think it is a very ambivalent phenomenon um, and it will certainly not please European companies um, that um, say uh, the political side will intervene in their investment and, and, and relocation decisions. Well, Ulla, staying with this uh, geo geopolitical international dimension, it doesn't just depend necessarily on the politics or the economics. Presumably, from your perspective in the pharmaceutical sector, there's a lot to do with regulation and compliance. And I'm thinking of things like even approval of vaccines from different parts of the world. So how do you see ally shoring in your sector? But I, I think I, I fully agree that that's... Uh, I, oh, I, and I also said it earlier that I don't think we need a political filter down on our sourcing um, on our, on our supply chains. Uh, so for me, it needs to be open uh, and to uh, and to risk mitigate to them to the utmost uh, in these situations. And if we start uh, making political alliances around that, I think we it becomes a little bit harder to maneuver actually. So uh, yeah, so I'm I can't see 
I can only see that it's going to uh, pollute our way of operating if if that becomes the way of uh, of operating. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not for it. In terms of uh, of, of vaccines, um, I I think again a collaboration around the world in terms of uh, establishing uh, supply chains for the vaccines is important and collaboration and trust in that. And I think the COVAX uh, we have uh, seen from the from FN. Uh, that is actually a, a collaboration in the EU is such a good example of how we can collaborate across borders to get the the more uh, the vaccines out to the whole world. So so that would be my take on that. Let's not let's try to work against the uh, LA sourcing. That would be my perspective. Well, thank you, Emma. A last question for you before we move on to our, our final lessons learned uh, aspect of our discussion today. Uh, slightly provocatively, Emma, is it time to to say farewell to the just-in-time delivery model and and think about maybe it being a little bit more circumspect? It's a very very good question, and uh, I I actually think about it sometimes because I'm thinking that. How can we trust? I mean, we have a very high production rate. We have a business models that and operational models that require that material is there on time. And normally, the, the a, a production side is pretty squeezed. But I think that we will have a little bit of both. And I think that the one that can trustfully deliver just in time is going to be a winner. Uh, and as I said before, uh, delivery is going to be key. Uh, referenced. Uh, uh, projects uh, with good delivery uh, is is going to be key, but I think that for critical material uh, that with the dependencies uh, across seas, uh, I think that maybe maybe we we're going to have a little more, bit more uh, security and slack in time when it comes to 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 our production. Well, thank you for that. I want to now uh, sort of get a final wrap-up thought from each of you. We've heard in these podcasts a lot of people talking about bouncing forward rather than bouncing back or building forward rather than returning to the way things were. So I'd like to ask you each what lessons we may have learned from the pandemic and if there is a silver lining perhaps that we could find. Ulla, I'm going to start with you. What would you say is the big takeaway from your perspective from the pandemic? Uh, I I think the the best or the the takeaway or the highest takeaway of what you would say is um, definitely this thing a bit about being more agile and that we can be we can think out of the box and we can make new partnerships uh, when we need to uh, and I think uh, yeah there was a lot of more agility established uh, during the pandemic and a lot of trust was built um, and and. Some of that will stay, but in the end, I think it will always be a matter of de-risking your supply chain and you have to plan it for the short term and you also have to plan it for the longer term. And I think it definitely emphasizes that your risk mitigating process is crucial and there are the things that we didn't believe could happen uh, five years ago has now proven that it can happen and we are seeing yeah, a pandemic is one thing, and we're also seeing dramatical changes uh, in the environment, and we just need to make sure that that we can accommodate that in the way we, yeah, we risk mitigate and the way we plan our supply chain. Werner, any quick lessons learned that you want to share with us? 
Well, um, lesson number one is that I would see that uh, I would argue that COVID, as well as other global crises, including in particular the climate crisis, uh, have shown that the world has become more vulnerable to natural as well as uh, man-made shocks. So the next crisis is sure to come, um, and we have to prepare for that. Um, and that brings me to lesson number two. In order for, for, for being prepared and, and being able to secure supply with essential goods, I think we need a um, multi-stakeholder approach to um, strategic policymaking, strategic planning involving the corporate sector, governments, and civil society actors. Um, I think it's, it's clear that this needs to become... Um, uh, an essential component of, of public uh, policymaking um, in the near future. Uh, and, and lesson number three, I would also argue that more international cooperation is indeed uh, necessary. What the crisis has shown is that cooperation uh, easily breaks, breaks down. Um, so I think we need to step up, um, and, and the European Union in particular needs to step up its efforts towards um, establishing international crisis mechanisms by, for example, building up strategic uh, reserves in certain uh, or supporting the, the build up of strategic reserves of, of essential goods in, in low income countries or by um, um, uh, improving the institutional and financial capacities of international support organizations, be it the, uh, the World Health Organizations or, or other UN organizations. Um, and we need to also promote, I think, more regionalized and localized forms of production of essential goods in the global south. So I think more international cooperation is necessary, not, not only through the, through the trade um, domain, but also um, uh, through the domains I've just mentioned. Thank you. And Emma? Yes, and I fully agree with the previous speakers on this. And, and I mean, just to add to that, I think my main takeaway from the pandemic is that sometimes the market forces are not strong enough. Uh, there are other things that this pandemic is just going to be the first of many cases, and we need to take take a, a number of steps back, just like the previous uh, uh, previous speaker said, that and and uh, and just um, start working more with the relationships globally, making sure we understand where we can really trust uh, our suppliers. Well, I'm going to ask you each now for a rapid take home for our listeners on the issue of reshoring and relocating. So if you can give me three cautionary words or three optimistic words about the, the, uh, the plans that pharmaceuticals or other companies may have coming up um, in terms of thinking about reshoring and relocating. Ulla, let me ask you, what three key words or three key points would you tell and advise our listeners to look at? Uh, risk mitigation, uh, building new uh, partnerships and building trust into your supply chain. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Werner, your three points? Well, firstly, uh, I've, I would argue that reshoring is not the, the, the panacea, but it is only one of several policy instruments to, strength, to strengthen the resilience of supply chains. Secondly, um, reshoring should not be excluded either from the policy toolbox. Um, and thirdly, it should be employed uh, in those cases where less interventionist methods are not effective. And I would argue that one case in point is promoting the production of personal protective equipment in the European Union. And Emma, you've got the challenge of coming up with three words that haven't been mentioned by your colleagues. I, I mean, I'm, I'm primarily thinking about two words. So, so it's closeness, staying close, regardless of if, if this is a geographical closeness or just relationship closeness, but stay close to your suppliers, understand how they're moving and what their challenges are. 
regular check-ins, you know, everything related to it. And then, of course, the, the sustainability piece. If you're doing sustainability audits like we do, you would probably also pick up on challenges related to anything on sustainability in terms of delivery, in terms of uh, sustainable business, in terms of pricing uh, developments, but also, of course, uh, sustainability uh, from an ecological perspective. So, so that would be my advice. Well, thank you all three. Great uh, for closing points all round as well. And thank you indeed for the discussion that led us to our, our key points for our audience to take away. So thank you very much for that. I think you've given our audience plenty of food for thought. No doubt we'll be considering these questions for months and years to come. And that's it for this special roundtable episode of the Unlocking the Future podcast. Be sure to check out more in the series and feel free to like, share and show your appreciation for the different topics online. This podcast series is an initiative of the European Commission and is part of the EU Industry Days 2022, Europe's flagship annual event on industry, taking place the week of the 7th to the 11th of February 2022. For more information on EU Industry Days, visit the website. This podcast was produced by VO with the financial support of the European Union. Its contents do not necessarily reflect the views of the European Commission.